This is Phantom Power. Welcome to another episode of Phantom Power, where we talk to incredibly smart and creative, talented people about sound. I'm Mac Haygood, and if I sound a little Barry White-ish, it's because I have COVID, and uh, I'm not feeling great, but I already had an interview in the can, and I just wanted to get this out to you um, on schedule, if possible. I think that's going to happen. And today's guest is Carolyn Birdsell. If you're a scholar of sound or radio, I imagine you already know her work. She's one of those people who represent really the benefit that I get personally out of doing this show, which is I get to finally meet people whose work I've been engaging with for a long time. Carolyn's definitely one of those people. There's so much I could have talked to her about, um, including her research on television sound or her methodological work on sensory history or doing oral history, um, some of her theoretical work on epistemology and the humanities. But in this interview, I chose to focus on her two books. First, her award-winning 2012 book, Nazi soundscapes. If there's any canon at all um, in historical sound studies, Nazi soundscapes certainly is in that canon. Um, so we talk about that book for a while. Um, and then we also talk about her new book, which is Radiophilia. Um, the Radiophilia is a term that she coins as she examines the love of radio. Um, and I think of Radiophilia as an established scholar book. Quite often, a scholar will make their name researching something very specific, say soundscapes in the Nazi era, for example. Um, and they make their contributions there, and then they, they build out a career. And then later in their career, after teaching for a decade or more and reading tons of other people's work and really getting a strong sense of the lay of the land in their field of expertise, they put out something more general, something that's a little more reflexive in terms of thinking about the field as a whole, where the field has been, where it should go. And that's the kind of book that a senior scholar tends to write in part because only a senior scholar could write that kind of book. And I think Radiophilia um, is that type of book. I think it's going to be of great value to anyone from a novice to an expert who wants to understand radio studies and to think about where it should go in the future. So in the beginning of the interview, I talked to Carolyn about her background, and then we kind of segue into the Nazi soundscapes book. And then I would say, you know, the second half of the, the conversation gets a little spicier because we do talk about the field of sound studies. We talk about media studies, some things that I get frustrated with. Uh, I kind of raised to her. We had a little bit of back and forth about the presence of fan studies in media studies and if it's a little bit too much of a presence. Um, and um, yeah, I, don't know, I just enjoyed this conversation a lot. We have some really great things down the line coming for you. I kind of went over um, the entire schedule, um, next eight shows in the last episode. So I won't go over that again right now, but I will say that our next guest, assuming my health holds out is Robin miles, the incredible audiobook narrator. Um, so, Hey, if you have any questions for Robin miles, I know we've got some fans out there. Drop me a line. Let me know, you know, hit me up on social media or send me an email I, let me know what you'd like me to ask her. Uh, you can find my uh, contact information at phantompod.org. One other thing I want to mention just before we get into the interview, this interview could not have happened without the help of Matt Parker, a longtime Phantom Power listener who is currently a postdoc at uh, the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication. Um, he got in touch with me and um, was just talking about how much he enjoyed the show. We 
discuss some things. Um, I listened to some of his amazing audio work. He's done some work for places like the BBC and he volunteered to help out if I ever needed help with an episode. And indeed I needed help with this one. You wouldn't be hearing this on time on schedule if it weren't for Matt. So Matt, thank you so much. Um, and also Caitlin Fan, thanks for doing our web work as usual. My amazing assistant, Caitlin, um, on the transcripts and making the website happen. And I should mention that at the end of today's episode in our Patreon feed, our patrons will hear our what's good segment where Carolyn Birdsell will talk about something good to do, something good to listen to and something good to read. Um, that's always a feature on our episodes in our patron feed. Please think about becoming a patron. I would, I would really appreciate your support. Okay. So here it is my interview with Carolyn Birdsell. I'm going to go to bed now. <laughs> Enjoy this, and um, I'll talk to you again soon. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I've been following your work for quite some time, so I'm really excited about meeting you and having this opportunity to talk. Same here. I'm very excited, and I haven't mentioned it before, but I'm a big fan of your work. Oh, wow. Well, thank you very much. I thought maybe we could start off by hearing a little bit about your background, because I know you're in the Netherlands, but I also know you studied in Australia. So maybe you could just start off with, you know, your early history. Where did you grow up? Uh, what were you into as a kid? That sort of thing. Sure. So I'm originally from Sydney in Australia. So I grew up and lived there until my early 20s. And I haven't really been asked this question that much before. And I think it's often hard to reconstruct how different paths and interests all came together. But um, perhaps it's important mm. to mention that I took German and history as my main courses at high school. Uh -huh. And uh, when I was a teenager, I spent several months living with a host family near the German city of Cologne, where more than 90% of the buildings were severely damaged or unlivable after 1945. So I guess already back then I was 15, I spent quite some time walking around in an urban and sonic environment that was really quite different from where I was from and where the built environment spans preserved Roman mosaics or mosaic floors and a Gothic cathedral through to the kind of architectural patchwork of post-war reconstruction. So I think there was already a spark of interest from that experience that drew me back to similar themes when I started to study at university. Oh, that's really fascinating. So was this like an exchange program? Yeah. And I mean, the funny thing is that my German was really quite bad, but <laughs> it was the mid 90s and there wasn't internet. And so I was just in this sort of funny bubble of going to high school and not really understanding a lot and lots of misunderstandings with the host family who were very nice and who I'm still in touch with. So it was really an experience of not being able to interact very well or communicate very well or make myself understood. So just really having to observe and listen a lot to the things mm -hmm. happening around me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's perhaps like more of a formative experience than I've ever thought about until today. I think it's, it's something that made me interested in, in, in Germany, in these cities that went through uh, enormous changes, political upheavals and reconstruction. But really coming at it from from a kind of position of knowing some things, but also not knowing a lot and only kind of incrementally later understanding and having frameworks for understanding some of the things I, I observed and experienced. Yeah, I think that is a commonality or among so many anthropologists and novelists and, and cultural scholars that there's some early formative experience in another culture that mm. kind of defamiliarizes the everyday and makes them realize that the home culture is peculiar in itself. <laughs> and it's just a kind of orientation <laughs> to the world that, you, that, that only travel can really give you, but in only a certain kind of travel, right? Like not going to a, a, a tourist destination, which has been made to be more like your home culture, but actually just being immersed in that way. 
Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that's the kind of first spark. And then I guess when I studied, you know, there, there wasn't something called sound studies or sound history at the moment I went to study, but I did do like a double degree at the University of New South Wales in Sydney where I studied. And so I, I think I was in a history program where I took all the courses on the history of print, media and cinema as well as urban gender and oral history. But then I was also in a media and communication program where I took courses on yeah the history of media and radio and sound design. Mm. But kind of being between these two disciplines, I was often troubled by the quite, yeah, I guess, technologically deterministic mm. view in many of those courses and the reading we had. I remember in particular, there was often a quite unnuanced account of national socialist uses of radio with state subsidized receivers mm -hmm. in which the authors essentially suggested that it ensured that all German listeners believed uh, Nazi propaganda. So I think that's something that I experienced both in my history degree and in my media and communications degree. So I think that was something that I'd, I'd already had an interest in German history and urban environments. And then I started to see that the accounts of how radio was introduced and experienced were very simplistic and deterministic. And I, I think it was really a sense of wanting to put the record straight, wanting to understand how things were probably not so straightforward, that in a very slow way put me on the path towards being interested in what eventually became a PhD project on the topic of Nazi soundscapes. But, you know, kind of it was really a grasping. And I think I had the good fortune of auditing a popular music studies course with a colleague uh, whose name is Bruce Johnson, and he became a kind of informal mentor in all things sound-related. I actually visited an anechoic chamber with him mm -hmm. at that time as part of an excursion, um, and he first gave me the tip to read Murray Schaefer's uh, 1977 The Tuning of the World mm -hmm. book, uh, which had been actually republished in the early 90s with the title The Soundscape. Yeah. And so I guess it was really just with his encouragement and slowly discovering the work of someone like Bruce Smith, who wrote a book called The Acoustic World of Early Modern England in 1999. And then later, obviously, Emily Thompson and Jonathan Stern's work mm -hmm. that I kind of felt bolstered to pursue an interest in historical soundscapes and listening practices. I mean, it felt at that moment, it felt like something like outer space <laughs> to be following this interest. But I saw that, okay, there are people who are doing it. And um, there was also a colleague who Bruce recommended called uh, Helmi Jaffa Luoma in Finland. And she was already doing comparative historical soundscape research in villages in Finland and elsewhere in Europe. So I thought, okay, mm. there are people into this history of sound thing. It's not totally mad. Yeah. But, you know, it did feel like, you know, all of my first steps also during my PhD, I always encounter people who said, wow, sound history, that's really out there or the history of listening. So it felt at that time to be somehow like a little bit yeah, like left field to to be pursuing this interest. Well, I, I'd love to come back to your dissertation and your very important book, Nazi Soundscapes. But before, maybe we could finish the um, career trajectory part and the biography part and just where did you wind up? How did it turn out that you're, you're in the Netherlands and, and so forth? I obviously, as I mentioned before, gotten a taste of living overseas and where perhaps today, Sydney and Melbourne seem like global cities and maybe still far away, but part of things. Back then, it still felt far away and not part of things. I was quite desperate to, mm. you know, get back overseas. I, I managed to find a scholarship in Germany for part-time English teaching at a high school, oh. like a state, it's called DAD. And I was able to study at the university in Dusseldorf at the same time. And I started to attend also oral history courses as well as more straightforward yeah, German history courses. Um, and so it was there that I started to develop the idea for, that became my PhD project and was published as Nazi Soundscapes. And I guess I didn't entirely know at that time that a doctoral studies path would be would be the one I would pursue. I'd actually had thought at one point that since this interest was so like out there, I couldn't quite see its place. I started to pursue audio engineering and I was doing theatre sound design. I was working for digital radio stations. But when I got to Germany and I was teaching, I followed up on an earlier contact I'd had with a researcher in Amsterdam who encouraged me to write a PhD proposal. And it was successful. So that's where I wrote my PhD at the University of Amsterdam. And I've also 
stayed on in the media studies department as a faculty member since 2009. So returning to Nazi soundscapes, you were talking about the rather stereotypical portrayal of radio in Nazi Germany. And I remember you start off that book really talking about the sort of stereotypical role that sound plays in the world's collective memory of Nazi Germany, you know, the noise of propaganda or the hectoring voice of Hitler or the complicit silence of people in the face of the Holocaust. Were you sort of thinking from the start, I want to get underneath that and beyond this sort of stereotypical portrayal of sound? Like, what was your motivation in this project? Sure. So, I mean, the original title of the PhD thesis was Between Noise and Silence with a question mark. So I think, you know, obviously that initial motivation to question some of these cliches mm -hmm. absolutely motivated me to start the PhD with this kind of questioning of the different kinds of, I guess, re repertoire that have come down through popular media and cultural memory. Mm -hmm. When it came to publishing the book, I, I thought, well, it would be a shame to kind of make that the main focus. And I, I wanted to kind of bring out the kind of stronger urban history component to thinking about sound technologies, embodied listening and space. So I think, I think it worked for starting the project and as a departure point or an entry point, but probably I would say where, where it ended up going with the research was really closer to what in fact became sound studies and these questions, methodological questions about researching historical soundscapes and kind of thinking, I guess, about the historical past. So I think a lot of those debates happening in cultural history and memory studies, they did influence the way I came to this question of historical sound. So I did actually do oral history interviews as part of the, the doctoral research. Yeah. And even though I kind of only really used them as bookends in the book, at the beginning and the end, and I, I wrote more extensively about these interviews in other articles, they really did help me think about the way in which the needs of the present inform our act of uh, asking questions about a, a particular period and its, uh, its listening practices, its sound cultures. Yeah, so that the questions that you were going to ask those informants were informed by present day concerns and, and also their answers too, right, will be informed by Germany in that particular moment or their surroundings in that particular moment. Absolutely. And I, I think it's also perhaps the task of looking for something that was ephemeral often at the time of its emergence, so sound in, in social and social life. Also, you know, makes you think about, you know, not just its ephemerality, but also the, the kind of very strange and creative ways you have to be with the sources that are available to find traces of those sounds. So I think that kind of yeah, search for different bits of fragments and kind of puzzling them together within a kind of more coherent narrative about historical soundscapes and listening practices, it forces you to think about the, the nature of all these bits and pieces, whether they're uh, policies or newspaper articles or diaries, letters, autobiographies, in addition to those oral history interviews I mentioned. So I think in a way it's, a, it's an elusive object of study, even, even when you're dealing with sound in the present, and then it becomes kind of interesting and challenging when you think about sound in the past. So the concerns, as I remember them in Nazi soundscapes, were um, you were thinking through the roles that radio and mediated sound played in fascist aesthetics, fascist culture, the construction of a fascist state. At least that was one of them. And actually, you know, now that I'm remembering, because are you you had this term that I'm thinking about, it's clearly uh, an effective term, which was uh, affirmative resonance. That's what, like a key idea that I remember. Could you maybe talk a little bit about like, how was radio deployed in reality in Nazi Germany? Like, uh, well, how does it differ from the quick stereotypical view that, that we generally have? The nuanced account that you've mentioned is absolutely consistent with the changes that happen in terms of policy, in terms of production practices, the staffing of radio, the desire to have state subsidized receivers, um, but also to control 
the listening of the public, particularly in, in situations of collective or communal listening, for instance, at school or in radio stations, in places of entertainment and so forth. So absolutely, I would say this idea of a political misuse and an instrumentalization of radio for propaganda purposes is consistent with without maybe more simplistic idea of a propagandistic radio under national socialism. Well, the German people were using radio as an entertainment medium before the Nazis rose to power. So I would think any use of propaganda would have to somehow still appeal to an audience that had already been, you know, cultivated in terms of using the radio as an entertainment medium, right? Absolutely. So um, that's part of why the study really starts in the Weimar period. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at Dusseldorf in particular and this regional context of the Rhine rural area. And I'm looking at how the changes in the historical soundscape in everyday life, but also in radio, in sound film, are part of a situation of negotiated change and continuity. So I'm looking at the ways in which we already have quite a, a politicized urban soundscape in the context of the 1920s with a lot of battles and uh, street fights between communists and national socialists, but also other uh, right-wing groups. So in a way, even though uh, there's a tendency to really zoom in on national socialism, when you think about radio and politics, I tried to take a longer periodization already starting in the, the mid-1920s to think about how certain changes and developments took place in the period prior to 1933. So what would a sort of, I don't know, a daily experience of radio be like for like a typical person? <laughs> what, what, what kind of things were, would they be hearing? Would radio be listened to in that sort of stereotypical family hearth way that we have conceptualized old time radio? Was it used more in public spaces? How would a typical person encounter? I know that's a very vague question, but... Absolutely. The kind of culture of experimentation that defined the Weimar Republic period, we see that as being productive in the years from the start of German radio, from like 1923 and 1924, through to the late 20s. And even though we have a lot of aesthetic experimentation still happening around 1930, 31, we also can see that there are quite major changes happening in this period where we've, you know, the depression has started or really kicked in. There are a lot of right-wing attacks on radio and that we kind of see a, a, like a kind of cautious tone emerging. So if we look at the, the period leading up to 1933, a lot of the major genres that we also know from, say, US radio are established. So uh, sport broadcasts, news, radio plays and radio drama, a little bit less the kind of soap opera model, of course, uh, being in a, a public broadcast system, literary adaptations, all kinds of experiments around kind of news compilation, reportage. You know, that's consistent across the whole period. Also the development around different types of music, operatic programming, as well as children's programming, women's programming. But I think what we start to see is that in this kind of period where it becomes more cautious, there's a preference for the safe bet. So programming that's not leaving program makers open to criticism. And what would the basis of these criticisms be? Would it Was it already racialized? Like were they playing jazz and they would get criticism for playing? Yeah. So, I mean, in the German context, we're dealing with a very particular context where... Um, from the moment that radio was established, like with regulated radio from 1923 onwards, there was a system of censorship. There was a concept that radio had to be above party political concerns. So already in the period that we think of as being the kind of experimental period of German radio plays and radio-specific or radiophonic explorations, we also have scripts set censorship already happening from the beginning, and we have advisory boards who are checking scripts before programs are aired. So I would say that there's already a level of intervention that is unusual for other contexts. When we get to this later period, already prior to the Nazi 
uh, takeover in 1933, there are new radio laws that allow for even more state centralized control over radio. Mm. All radio stations fully owned by the Federal Radio Board. They're no longer partly commercial or privately owned. In a few cases, that was uh, the case. Interestingly, I would say there's still a lot of continuity when we look at the genres across the period. So, you know, even though the, the discursively there's more propaganda also within entertainment programming, it's definitely the case that the types of programs stay rather consistent. And the attacks towards programs in the Weimar period in the early 30s from the right, it's mainly racially motivated. So it's because there were a lot of left-wing authors, people with Jewish backgrounds, but it's also aesthetic. Hmm. It's really about there being an experimental aesthetic that associated with the Weimar period Mm -hmm. and that that needs to be stopped and a culture of uh, national yeah, it's called Völkisch in German, so folksy programming needs to take place with more use of marching songs, uh, anthems. But actually, when those types of programs were instated in 1933 to roughly 34, 35, they were highly unpopular. Huh. Until World War II, there's a place given to militaristic songs in the context of public rallies and public events, commemorations. But in the kind of entertainment programs and news programs, there's a little bit more of a sense that the propaganda has to be more finely tuned. And I think that's maybe also part of the cliche is that it's hard for us to imagine that there was a lot of light entertainment and comedy programs on National Socialist Radio. But that's actually what is often remembered if you have interviews with people. Oh, wow. Even during the war. Absolutely. Uh Yeah, I mean, I think the the stereotype is uh, Hitler using his outside voice (laughs) instead of using the radio as an intimate medium, as in, say, the fireside chat, right? Absolutely. It sounds like there were a lot of other types of programming and other ways to effectively appeal to people. Speaking of that, maybe because I don't think we quite nailed down that concept that I remember from the book, which is affirmative resonance. So... Now that we kind of understand radio programming in, in Nazi Germany, can you maybe talk a little bit about this concept that you developed? Sure. So it's uh, a concept I adapted from a scholar whose name is Cornelia Epping Jaeger. And she was thinking about uh, the role of the loudspeaker and the PA system in Nazi Germany. And she was really taking it from a, a media theoretical point of view, thinking about like, what does the loudspeaker allow? What kinds of functions does it have? Does it afford? How is it uh, developed and used during National Socialism? And I guess I really want to take that more into an applied situation. And so with affirmative resonance, I was looking at the ways in which loudspeaker systems were being used in tandem with members of the crowds participating in call and response, in singing, in shouting, in musical performance, the anthems being performed and sung. And I was trying to think about the ways in which there's a sensory disciplining happening in these early years of National Socialism, or even these first months, actually, of National Socialism, and how we know from reports that there's really a range of people who attend such events people who are perhaps very motivated and involved in Nazi groups through to people who were partly intrigued or uh, attracted to an event like this to others who were passing through or maybe just experienced the processions as they came to this site. And so I found this concept of affirmative resonance to be really useful for thinking about this kind of sonic enfolding and participation of the people who are there and who might not actually be actively participating in the event. So they might not be singing, they may only be listening, but they're experiencing the amplified uh, volume and the kind of, yeah, not only affirmative resonance of confirming the power and the relevance of the National Socialist Party, but also the kind of effective nature of being exposed to a large volume of sound being produced by a huge crowd, I think, of some hundreds of thousands of people and its amplification. Yeah, yeah, I really love that concept. And um, a friend of mine, Travis Bogan, and I have done some work on the role of fan noise, uh, crowd noise in the 
National Football League oh. and the way that noise in that context is an affective resource that gets deployed in different ways. Um, so, for example, you know, it gets miked and put in the surround channels of the broadcast. And this this fan noise, this, this production of the audience, but it's actually extremely valuable and something that the NFL monetizes not only through television, but also through making the role of the crowd a part of the attraction of the event itself, that participatory engagement. What I really like about what you're talking about with affirmative resonance is it's capturing that dynamic, but also really thinking about it in terms of a kind of discipline. We're disciplining the senses to anticipate certain things, to enjoy certain things, to to feel like I'm part of the group through sound. And that can be a really powerful political dynamic if we just look at something like a Trump rally. The joy of laughing at the elites together, of booing together, um, I mean, it's just a really powerful, effective resonance and resource that can be used for political purposes just as well as it can be for, used for commercial purposes. I would totally agree. And I think it was interesting during the pandemic. I, I can't speak for American football, but I know that in uh, European soccer or football, that the absence of crowd sounds and noise was affecting gameplay, at least from anecdotal evidence, it seemed that the players themselves were suffering from the absence of that kind of volume of sound that they're used to, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for better or for worse, but also in terms of yeah, the domestic television or screen experience. Obviously, a lot of people are watching uh, some of those highlights with the sound off on smartphones and other digital devices. But I think in terms of domestic television consumption, there's a tendency to really put the volume up and for it to really enhance the experience of watching soccer matches. Mm -hmm. And so I found that to be a really interesting observation that at one point that I think they actually introduced canned yeah. audience sounds. Yeah. They, we, I don't know if they did that for the US as they well. Did it extremely early on in the in the US. And in fact, Travis and I were planning to do a follow-up article about that, but we, we just never really got around to it. <laughs> <laughs> Might be a little late now, but yeah, we, I, I don't know if I want to think about the pandemic too much at this I point. I think there is a tendency for there to be a, a common agreement to not thematize the pandemic. And I, I knew that that was already the case in the commercial publishing industry. I read several articles about how um, publishers had not contracted any novels or other forms of books about the pandemic because there was a common understanding that the reading audience, whether it's for fiction or for more scientific or academic books, that there is a real aversion to reflecting on the pandemic and that the general consensus is to try to not think about it as much as possible, even though um, obviously it's not over and it still is affecting many people that the, yeah, there's a, there's a real kind of sense in which people don't want to dwell too much on the 2020 to Absolutely. 21 period. <laughs> Absolutely. I know I don't want to. <laughs> and then this is one of, you know, such an important lesson for cultural scholars that we need to attend to the silences just as much as to the, the noisier, more prevalent aspects of a culture, right? Like there, there's a huge message in the lack of material <laughs> that's being generated about the pandemic. Speaking of soundscapes, I'm, I'm listening to the uh, quite different siren that you have over there. <laughs> yeah, I live near a main road, so um, it's funny. I, I did hear it, but I thought, oh, that's just background sound. <laughs> oh, no, I heard it loud and clear, yeah. Okay. <laughs> actually enjoyed it. <laughs> Didn't sound like uh, a U.S. siren, so nice. Um, well, now that we have um, you know, fully engaged with the rather dreadful topics of Nazism and the pandemic. <laughs> Maybe we can turn to a happier topic, which is your, you know, recent book on the love of radio or what you call radiophilia. Sure. 
It's an interesting thing to approach as a topic because it can mean many different things, right? Like in one respect, radio is simply a portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. We could also think of radio as a specific type of broadcast and reception technology, you know, a radio. But we can also think of it as a social practice. So, you know, there are technologies that are literally radio that we don't typically think of as radio. So, for example, um, I teach a large class called the Smartphone in Society. Typically, there'll be like 120 students in the room. And I'll ask them, how many of you are radio users? And typically, only one or two students will raise their hand. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of point out to them, well, actually, their smartphones, like all the data they're getting is coming through radio. <laughs> but we don't think of that as radio. And maybe that's kind of pedantic, but it's sort of a reminder that this is a social construction when we talk about radio. There are things that are literally radio that we don't think of as radio, like TV, mm -hmm. TV is radio, smartphones. But there are things that, are, that aren't literally radio that are arguably pretty much the same as listening to radio in terms of a social practice. So things like audio live streaming or Pandora or maybe something like Twitter spaces, if that still exists. I don't go on Twitter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, or, or what we're doing right now, podcasting, right? Like when you're trying to tackle this rather nebulous topic of radiophilia, the love of radio, what was your specific object of study? How do you delimit what you're really going to focus on? Great. Thanks for this fantastic question. I, I completely agree. There's a, there's a huge span of things that we might define as radio that are not considered radio and then the other way around. So I think the lesson of radio in general as, a, as an object of study is, and I guess here I really follow the work of Kate Lacey, mm. Um, and, and she argues that because radio has been so influential in everyday life, it's become so normalized that we actually find it difficult to see it as connected to certain aspects of present day media culture. So I think that's something that, mm -hmm. you know, perhaps the historian in me is very much um, yeah enthusiastic about that argument because I, I do see a lot of commonalities and and actually, when we had the book launch for my book, I, I got a question about uh, Clubhouse and mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and about the way in which certain forms of social audio, uh, you know, are actually doing similar things with shared experiences of live content that actually, you know, does have its roots in radio. So I would absolutely say that, like, that's a, a really interesting uh, dimension to radio that is part of its attraction for me mm -hmm. is that it tells us something about the, the past 100 years and certain developments in the larger media landscape that help us think about certain developments in the present, even if they're not acknowledged. And I think particularly because a lot of colleagues working in new media don't have that historical interest. Mm -hmm. And as well as there's a temptation to buy some of the presentism of uh, tech discourse. Yeah. So I think that's that's a real kind of motivation for me in thinking about a hundred years of radiophilia is not just thinking about a hundred years of radio from early wireless audio uh, and regulated broadcasting through to the present and thinking about internet radio as well as forms of digital audio uh, like podcasting. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I realize there are important differences. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I obviously in the book, do talk about like what is it about the networked listening experience and you know what other things are happening uh, as people engage with digital audio content you know with smartphones or through platforms um, so you know on the one hand acknowledging certain commonalities in terms of uh, shared listening experiences and perhaps even a discourse of radioness has been has, has been discussed in the literature while understanding that there are, you know, things happening with algorithms and platform logics that really are far beyond what we were seeing with the types of, let's say, radio audience interactions and fan uh, groupings and practices happening around analog radio uh, previously. So I think that's something that, you know, I want to kind of hold both instead in a way. Like yeah. I want to see radiophilia as obviously connected to a history of the thing we generally think of as radio and its bifurcation into other f similar forms of 
let's say, citational modes, whether it's like Last FM or a podcast network like iHeartRadio, that, that in a way it's like using the thing we think of as radio for the purposes of podcasting as a new media form. What were you trying to convey in choosing this term radiophilia? So like, are there connotations of that term that made you choose it over say, oh, I'm studying radio audiences, or I'm studying listening to radio, or I'm studying radio fandoms. Uh, why this particular term? I mean, it is a new term, radiophilia. Like the way I define it in the book is rather as an expansive concept. So it's really, I'm talking about a love for or a strong attachment to radio. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, I'm trying to say that there are multiple ontologies of radio. So like, you know, I'm, I'm arguing that the exact conditions, forms, or media assemblages may differ across time and space. And I guess what I see is the kind of added value of this concept is it does force us as scholars to think about radio's effective appeal. Mm -hmm. All the things you mentioned, I see them as components within this larger complex that radiophilia is encompassing. So audiences, their listening practices, their engagement as users with a technological device, also thinking about a wide spectrum of practices that are associated with an emotional attachment, if not fandom, to you know radio as a technology in terms of particular stations or content or stars or announcers that they're that they're engaged with. So, in a way, even though these different aspects you mentioned, so audiences, fans, listening practices radio use, I, I see them as, as really important, but I don't think any of those single terms encompass this kind of larger complex that I'm trying to tackle yeah. with the radiophilia concept. And I really appreciate this wider perspective you're bringing to the table here because I don't, this is probably an unpopular opinion of mine, <laughs> but, <laughs> but as a media scholar though, I feel like one of the blind spots we might have in the world of media studies and popular music studies these days is an outsized emphasis on fandom. Mm -hmm. You know, all of us who are passionate enough to actually study popular culture for a living, we're almost by default, like huge fans of something, right? Like whether it's a TV genre or like a, a, a cinematic universe, I hate that term, but a, a particular artist, you know, singer, whatever. But I think the focus on fandom can create these these uh, lacuna of, of thinking about how people really use media. Because I think how most people spend most of their time engaging with media is not in a fan relationship. Sure. And I know that the sort, the sort of Henry Jenkins and Akka fan stuff, like that was meant to address to be a corrective to say previous eras of scholarship that didn't take fandom seriously enough. And I, I totally get that and appreciate that. I think there's a lot of important work done in fan studies and so forth. But I sort of just <laughs> have a almost perverse, you know, obstinate desire in my own scholarship to, to focus on media that people don't have a fan relationship to, but still love, right? Like media that are meant to be ignored or help you ignore other things. So with white noise, other kinds of sonic wallpaper. What I like about your radiophilia concept is you write that like the study of radiophilia is not just about super fans or radiophiles. It's also about sort of ordinary, habitual, mundane, everyday listening, which I think is really important to include. Well, thanks. Uh, it's interesting to hear about your aversion to fan studies. I think it's interesting having seen fan studies move from a kind of peripheral subfield mm -hmm. of media studies to such a central, the central place it now has. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can sometimes mean that some of the earlier countercultural vibes that came with early fan studies literature can seem a bit bewildering now that it's so central to the field that mm -hmm. if you go to a, a conference, there are so many panels on fan studies and f fan practices. I see it as something that has its own blind spots the same way that any subfield has its blind spots. And I think it's interesting for me to be interested in what fan studies has to offer, 
but not necessarily being interested in the same objects of study. So I see like there's a lot of great work being done. And and in the book, I've really found that that certain approaches developed by Matt Hills or Nicole Lamericks when it comes to thinking about uh, kind of the effective relation that fans develop in relationship to their yeah, their object of desire. I found it really helpful to think about certain different aspects to, to that relation, to affect, thinking about also about cultural practices around media objects, mm-hmm. think, thinking about uh, also where you position certain types of um, productivity or creativity. You know, are we more invested in the kind of fan creativity which is self-created or do we also acknowledge merchandise that is that is industry generated so there are a lot of different things happening in fan studies that help me think about the kind of the range of ways that people might be effectively engaged in radio and sort of generate material cultures around that effective relation so i i totally wouldn't dismiss the field but i do have a certain discomfort around its narratives mm-hmm. of history. So I definitely, in the book, try to challenge some of the historical genealogies of fandom that are really invested in the ways in which the thing we think of as fandom now comes from a 1930s sci-fi fans mm-hmm. of print media mm-hmm. and how that paves the way for sci-fi fandom into film and television and most obviously with Star Trek fans who develop conventions and a lot of the conventions of what we think of as fan practice. So part of what I was trying to do is like think about how, okay, I'm thinking about radio, which is very much neglected in the fan studies field to a lesser extent. You know, we do find music fandom studies, but often not historical music fandom studies. And so I was really trying to think like, would there be other genealogies of media fandom similar to radio that might shift us away from this very kind of limited sci-fi narrative? And I found that there's some amazing work that's been done about uh, theater fan scrapbooks, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about early movie fan scrapbooks, about teenage girls and the ways in which they, they gathered souvenirs and programs and produce forms of sociality and fandom around theater and later uh, cinema. And that was really helpful for me to think about how like, oh, we have these other genealogies of media fandom that are not, you know, that are just starting to be published now, many of them, and they don't take us back to reasserting this one story about 1930s uh, sci-fi fandom as the early history of fandom so in a way it's it's helpful to engage with the film but i see blind spots i also see a kind of a skewing towards male taste cultures which has obviously been challenged by feminist fan studies about fitting but still i guess from a historical point of view i still experience some of the let's say the objects of study as being quite particular (laughs) and sometimes a bit narrow i would say yeah, yeah, and I, I, I definitely appreciate like the the work on affect that has been done in fan studies, and I do think that these kinds of profound attachments and creativity of audiences all very important. I just think it's the exception rather than the rule in in terms of time spent engaging with media. That's that's the exception, and it's rather extraordinary how much time our fields spend focused on the exceptional rather than the mundane and the everyday. I think that's actually a sign that we're real sound studies people because sound studies has often been interested in less popular and often problematic objects like music Mm -hmm. or in the case of your own work, problematic power relations with noise cancellation headphones, or in my case, problematic uses of sound technology, in highly politicized situations. So I think there's something to be said that while sound studies has a strong relationship to popular music studies and is often interested in the popular, there is a a sense, I would say, in the sound studies field that, you know, the interest in cultural politics or the politics of sound creates with it a certain suspicion, I think, about ACA fandom Mm -hmm. or, like, being an ACA fan 
I can't say which is better, but I do see that as kind of symptomatic of the certain interests of our field is to say like, well, yes, we should look at very distinct cultural objects and the things happening around them. But, you know, in sound studies, like what's the larger picture of the media landscape or, you know, you know, the situation that or the discursive yeah. frameworks that this particular thing takes place in. And that does tend to tend to make us a bit more suspicious. So um, I, I guess in a way, writing a book about radiophilia, I partly gave in to an idea about like positive affects and thinking about being kind of effectively boosted in relationship to different forms of sound on radio or, mm -hmm. or kind of a broader concept of radio. But perhaps in that sense, I'm still the grumpy sound scholar who's like, yes, but... So. <laughs> well, but, but I'm not even sure that we need to pair the skepticism about fandom with a with a negative take on cultural products. I mean, radio is just something that's very elastic in terms of your attention to it. And it's open to many different kinds of engagement. Some of it is very passive and disinterested, but also could be very positive, right? Like you can really love something without really examining it or 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 remixing it or doing some kind of fan art with it right like if i just think about what what I, the the sort of purchase that i made most recently that i love the most i got a new mattress <laughs> <laughs> i love this mattress right like like and i love it precisely because it doesn't draw attention to itself you know i i went went home to visit people in my hometown and I had to sleep on other people's mattresses and I, and I hated it because it, I had to pay attention to those mattresses and they were keeping me awake. Like, <laughs> I love my mattress precisely because I don't have to pay attention to it at all. It, and yet it's a powerful, effective relationship I have with that thing, right? And I think we could say the same thing about something like Lo-Fi Girl, right? Like the hip hop beats to study by. People can really love that and they're never ever going to make any fan art about it. I'm sure somebody will. There's probably somebody making fan art about a mattress, but <laughs> again, that would be the exception and not the rule. No, I, I totally hear you. I think that's part of the reason why I, I really want to include that insight from sound studies about the kind of wide spectrum mm -hmm. of attention people pay to any given sound or, or object in their environment, which is, you know, that, that kind of really large spectrum between something that we might call focused or attentive or active listening mm -hmm. through to the distracted, the less invested, the background. I think that's really where we see the kind of sound studies ethos, I would say, in our thinking is like, mm -hmm. yeah, but it, it is a spectrum or it is a continuum and it's it's dynamic and it changes. And, you know, even if I am super invested or I am a super fan of a particular show, that doesn't mean that my kind of engagement, attention, effective relationship to it is stable. Right. Doesn't mean I'll listen to the end. Something I actually came across after I finished the Radiophilia book was a fantastic new study by a colleague called Caitlin Benson Allard. Hmm. And the title of the study is called The Stuff of Spectatorship, Material Cultures of Film and Television. Hmm. And I guess because I teach in a television and cross-media team in my media studies department, you know, I am always thinking about like, oh, how does this relate to other things happening in the media landscape? And I just really loved her book because, well, she's talking about how, say, drinking soft drinks or being drunk while watching television or, you know, eating food in your living room, you know, is framing your experience of media. But she's also talking about how consuming TV week from the 80s onwards, um, as opposed to another program magazine but because i'm not from the u.s i've forgotten the oh, title uh, tv guide um, yes thank you yeah. <laughs> the differences between i think tv week and tv guide and how they framed television viewing experience differently in the u.s context and you know thinking about these different aspects to you know the kind of material cultures of homes but also yeah consumer culture eating drinking as we engage with different forms of film and television, I mean, she's particularly interested in, let's say, living room settings of the 80s and 90s. And I found it to be kind of also both really inspiring, but also maybe quite validating to my own study, which, you know, is thinking about the different media that play into or boost or fuel mm -hmm. what we might call radiophilia. So whether it's 
fan magazines or program magazines, uh, films in the cinema about radio, different forms of uh, yeah, merchandise or creating personal collections or... Radio museums. Radio museums, uh, radio exhibitions. And so there are other people who are trying to develop this strong, in a way, intermedial and material cultural sensibility in relationship to yeah, lived experiences of media. So I, I would say that would be my tip for any listeners who are interested uh, or who have ever you know, watch television drunk and want to understand what it means, um, I would uh, highly recommend her book. That sounds fantastic. And I, that is one thing I really admired about this most recent book of yours is that this attention to the intermedial effects and the ways that radio might be the study object or radiophilia, but we have to talk about all of this other constellation of media and environments in order to understand the love of radio and what it's doing. I wanted to talk a little bit about another theme in the book, which is the way that radiophilia has been pathologized. And I was particularly sure. intrigued by the early days. In fact, I wished you had like maybe written a little bit more about this, but you mentioned like radio fever or going radio crazy, <laughs> which are these diagnoses that I wasn't too familiar with. So I would love to hear about <laughs> these pathologies. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's really quite striking across different contexts in the world. We see that, you know, also coming off earlier fears of new media, whether it's uh, cinema or even before that, uh, the train or modern photography, photographic culture. Yeah. We also see with radio a real tendency to worry firstly about the amateur. So the often the person who's characterized as uh, a young man or middle-aged man who's a radio enthusiast or hobbyist who in the 1910s, let's say, is, you know, surfing the waves of the global ether, trying to, you know, listen out for often Morse code and later uh, music and voice, yeah. but particularly in the early periods, Morse code, um, and trying to pick up signals from other places in the world and often doing that in yeah, the attic room or somewhere removed from the kind of the family environment. Um, so we, we have a kind of fear articulator or cultural anxiety in, in this early period about those amateurs. And they often even claim the term themselves, like I'm radio crazy or, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like I'm a fan. So actually it's interesting, like the idea of the word, word amateur as being love, yeah. you know, immediately this kind of fan word is claimed by the early amateur uh, groups and individuals. And yeah, there's a lot of anxiety about them kind of being antisocial, removing themselves from, from the, the, the domestic situation, being distracted, uh, being easily influenced. Um, and what we actually see is as radio is domesticated, so uh, we have regulated radio in different countries, and we start to have the idea of radio as a domestic technology in the living room or in some countries kind of in the kitchen or uh, ex expanded uh, kitchen mm -hmm. environment with the family in the domestic hearth, mm. that that fear is actually transferred to women. Mm. So what we see in early, let's say, uh, regulated radio broadcasting in the 20s is really, and, and even into the 30s in some contexts, is this idea that you might get a radio fever or you might be uh, somehow uh, afflicted mm -hmm. by being obsessed with radio, by being distracted. And in the context of women in the domestic setting, it's often situated as not being able to apply oneself to one's domestic duties. So, you know, it's very much a gender discourse. Oh, so the radio is getting in the way of the ironing? Absolutely. <laughs> that, that, uh, that women would become too nervous, <laughs> that they wouldn't, uh, they would become too distracted. They wouldn't be able to apply themselves and focus on their domestic uh, duties. That's such a, such a difference from the kind of flow that people often describe about, say, podcasts that it enables them to wash the dishes or mow the lawn and and kind of get through these mundane tasks and feel more engaged in, in a way. 
Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we also hear that discourse too, this idea about radio as, as being like a, a background that lightens the day, yeah. that makes the day go faster, that, you know, it starts to be used in factories mm -hmm. in in the 20s and 30s and also in the context of World War II. So, yeah. Tia but, Denora's work. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So there, there is also that concept of like, radio and the, the rhythms of the domestic environment. But a lot of the things that happened later in our own media environment, whether it's the transistor radio or the iPod or the iPhone uh, or gaming, digital gaming, that you know we see these same kinds of cultural anxieties about distraction, isolation, aggression, children and violence, criminality. We see different kinds of, let's say, reversionings, I would say, of very similar discourses and what would have been elsewhere called technopathologies in other uh, literature. So I think that's something that's maybe also like I am very interested in radio and I'm interested in how across this 100 year period, different things happen in the way that people relate to either the thing we call radio or the different devices used to consume. So whether it's a headphone based or headset based sets, as opposed to loudspeaker based sets or the transistor or the Walkman, like, you know, these different devices do structure our kind of notions of intimacy and connection. At the same time, there are these strange kind of discursive patterns that, you know, do repeat themselves. And I think it's really helpful to have these insights from other media historians that we can kind of frame and place them better. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I feel very conflicted around this issue these days. I think I'm one of a number of people who was probably, you know, using the framing of moral panics around media for quite some time. And I think it's a really important insight. But at the same time, I think there are a number of scholars that, that I talk to, media scholars, who are sort of like, yeah, maybe some of those moral panics were actually pretty accurate. And, you know, yeah. um, th that our present day media environment truly is creating alienation and isolation in pretty profound ways and maybe encourages us to look back on some of those previous so-called moral panics with a less jaundiced eye. I, I, I get the sense that scholars like uh, Neil Postman are coming back into fashion. And, All right. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wonder, I wanted to shift to maybe one last theme in the book and I, I'm, I'm, sure. I'm certainly leaving a lot out here but 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 <laughs> folks folks can definitely uh, get the book and and dive in to, to get the full picture but you also discuss sort of these certain kinds of biases that have often suffused those the way we talk about radio um, and the way we study radio and so I was wondering if you could maybe talk about some examples of non-Western radio use. You mentioned earlier sort of like the masculine bias that tends to suffuse, you know, thinking about radio fandoms and so forth. So maybe from a feminist or non-Western perspective, are there any examples of radio use that are really different from what we typically imagine? Sure. So in the book, you know, I am calling for more global perspectives on radio research. And as part of the, the research agenda I set up, I try to bring in examples where perhaps the domestic model of privatized radio consumption needs to be challenged because, you know, that radio is more of a, a, of a public media where transistor radios are carried into other environments. Mm -hmm. uh, I give the example from research about the Philippines that a lot of radio consumption historically happened at corner shops and in kind of tandem with local gossip and chatting with other people from your neighborhood so that there's a kind of communal context of reception and interpretation. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think there's also a really great contemporary work coming out, which comes back to the conversation we had earlier today about uh, different expansive understandings of radio. We have a colleague whose name is Laurie Kida Lopez. Mm -hmm. She's yeah. published a bunch of articles, including one called uh, Mobile Phones as Participatory Radio. And she's really interested in the way in which Hmong uh, migrants in the US uh, and you know in their communities, whose producers and audiences often post what they call as ra like radio content, but it's a form of teleconferencing yeah. using mobile phones. And then often it's um, posted as content onto YouTube. And so she's talking about 
in these articles about how there's a form of sharing and informal archiving, but also a kind of shifting of the definition of what radio is. And I think that's really helpful to understand that, uh, you know, that a form of teleconferencing with mobile phones could also be experienced by a group of listeners in a particular linguistic group, like the Hmong people she talks about in the US, as mimicking the structures and relations that radio off- may have offered in a different context, more similar to community radio. But it's it's happening with mobile phones and it's being reposted and consumed again through YouTube. So yeah. I think that's like, there are some of the examples, like there are many more that I discuss uh, in the book, which are just encouraging us to kind of maybe unlearn some of the historical narrations and assumptions about what the history of radio looks like, what radio is, and and to really uh, see that, you know, in some countries, radio was established by newspaper barons. In other countries, the newspapers tried to block radio news programming. So, you know, we have different kinds of assemblages happening, and it's really uh, important as part of a, I would say, like a radio and sound studies agenda to kind of do some of the work that our colleagues have talked about as like a remapping of sound studies and a kind of, you know, I wouldn't quite say like always a decolonization, but just understanding how certain uh, assumptions are sort of defaulting and also our citational practices. So I I think I mentioned to you before, this book was largely written in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't always able to do the same types of research that I had previously, but I really took that as an opportunity to read very widely really beyond my expertise, you know, different places, different time periods, and to try to draw from some of the very exciting work that's come out in radio podcast and uh, sound studies that is expanding our understanding of what radio is, its audiences, the kind of practices that developed uh, over this 100-year period of radio. So I, I think that would be kind of, I would say, the main agenda that I'm hoping that this Radiophilia book and this concept is advancing is encouraging scholars and also the readers of the book to open their minds to the different types of ontologies of radios and the different the kind of the differently formed notions of of audience of listener of user that we sometimes take as too much of a given i would say Mm. oh well i think that invitation is a lovely place to end our conversation you've been so generous with your time and your ideas so thank you so much for talking to me Thank you, Mac. It's been a pleasure.